this that causes fear, aren't there? Terrorism, violent crime, disease, traffic accidents, extraterrestrial invasion. Okay, maybe you're not afraid of the last one, right? But, but, but many of these things that, that, that crop up, we're, we're concerned about what if, what if, what if. And the fact is there are probably many other things that, that may not kill us, but we still fear our well-being, right? Finances, economics, political concerns, work concerns, planning for retirement, raising our children well, on and on and on the list of the things that trouble us, that concern us, that cause us fear. The fact is when we think about how dangerous the world around us is, what are we inclined to do? We're inclined to be afraid. So how do we respond to that? I mean, we are gripped with the reality that life is fragile, that there are things around me that could cause me harm. How do we respond to being gripped with those fears? Well, humanity throughout history has really come up with basically three answers to how we respond to the difficulty around us. The first, and this is kind of the Western, the modern Western go-to impulse, is to look outward, to find something around me, to find something in my circumstances that is stable, that I can latch onto, that gives me an anchor. So for some, it's their work. For some, they find meaning in, a fa- in their family. For others, it's having a strong support network. What is it in my environment that is stable that I, can, that I can really put my anchor into and depend on and rely on? The first answer of humanity is, is to look outward for something that is stable. The problem is the things around us are fleeting. They're fickle. Anything around us, anything in our circumstances, anything in our environment, even the people that we count on will at some point disappoint us. It will fail. And then we find everything imploding because the thing that we trusted in has failed us. So there's a second answer that humanity has come up with. This is largely the the transcendental, eastern, mystical answer. And that is to, to look within. To look to oneself as the source of strength. Now, this has been repackaged for a, a modern American audience in the form of kind of a New Age philosophy. The power of positive thinking, meditative practices. It's even been giving, given a, a thin religious veneer and propagated through the word of faith movement and or the prosperity gospel. But the truth is that many people have found comfort in that. They found great comfort because because looking to oneself is actually more stable than looking to something outside of ourselves. And so many people find great comfort in this kind of mystical, look-within, meditative approach to stability. In fact, you'll probably find that many of those people are more stable. But here's the problem. We will fail at some point. 
It's still, it's still idolatry. It may not be an external idol. It, it may be an idol within our own heart. But at some point, idols eventually disappoint. And so at some point, we find the second answer of looking inward to fail us as well. Well, the scripture teaches us a third answer. It teaches us to look upward. It teaches us that God's people can have confidence because of God's care. The main point of this passage this morning is that you and I, if we are God's people, if we are trusting in Him, that we can have confidence because God cares for us. And so we have before us Psalm 121. I trust you have your Bibles open, and it opens with this statement, I will lift up my eyes unto the hills. Now, at first blush, that may appear to be a challenge to you to, to look to something beyond yourself, to look to that which is transcendent. Now, that is true. We must find something beyond us. We must find something transcendent to, to put our trust in. And that is true, but that is not quite enough. This is not merely an appeal to look to the beautiful, to look to the natural or the majestic. So in order to understand why that's not what what the first phrase of verse 1 is saying, I would encourage us to consider the context. Now, typically when you read a psalm, you see Psalm 121 and you just skip right down to verse 1, don't you? you? You skip over that other stuff that's there. But I actually want us to take a moment to think about it. You may have, in my Bible, I see a subheading, which generally is an editor's kind of summary of what that psalm is about. In my Bible, it says the God of help, or excuse me, God the help of those who seek him. And then following that, you have a heading over that psalm. And what does your Bible say is the, is the heading over that psalm? You can read it out loud. I won't bite. A psalm of ascents. Does anybody have anything different? A psalm of degrees. So those are one of the two things that you're probably going to see. Um, a psalm of degrees or a psalm of ascents. Now, what in the world is this all about? Okay. There was, uh, in the Jewish tradition, these frequent pilgrimages to Jerusalem the seat of worship. Now, in Jewish parlance, they would speak of going up to Jerusalem. Even if they were in the north and they were coming south, they would still speak of going up to Jerusalem. And they spoke of going up to Jerusalem because why? Because Jerusalem was, it was up. It was in the hills, right? It was, Jerusalem was perched on a hill. So no matter where you were coming from, you were, watch this now, ascending to Jerusalem. Okay, The psalms of ascent were the songs that they sang while ascending on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. These were travel songs. And so the Jewish people would sing the psalms starting in Psalm 120. All the way through Psalm 134, you will see that same heading, a song of degrees or a psalm 
of ascent. As they went to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast, they would go up to Jerusalem, they would sing these psalms along their way. And so, as they looked to the hills, right? Verse 1, I will lift my eyes to the hills. They were not merely saying, oh, aren't those hills beautiful, right? The hills are alive with the sound of music, right? It wasn't just that. Now, certainly there is a, a beauty, a transcendence that, that is recognized in, in the mountains. That is not untrue, but that's, that's not ultimately what they were saying. They were saying, I am lifting my eyes to Jerusalem, the abode of God, the place of the temple. And this is why the very next phrase says, from where does my help come? Now, you may have it differently. I would suggest that even though punctuation, you understand punctuation is editorial. It was added by your translator. All right, But I do think the question mark actually helps us to understand what the psalmist is saying. I'll lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from these beautiful mountains. No, my help comes from Yahweh. Jehovah, the Lord. So, this psalm is a psalm of traveling mercies, right? You ever hear people pray that? Lord, give so-and-so traveling mercies. What do they mean? They mean, help this person to be safe in their journey. Now, just as our life, our journey here on earth is full of fears and dangers The fact is, there were many dangers as people traveled to Jerusalem in those days. I mean, the roads were rough. Injury was a very real possibility. Robbers laid in wait for vulnerable people coming down the road. Being stranded on the roadside, unable to resupply food or water. I mean, you imagine imagine if you're, you're riding a donkey and your donkey dies, and you're stuck there, and the next town is, you know, a three days journey. There were very real dangers. In fact, it was so dangerous that there were a few spots that you couldn't get cell signal. Right? And they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't pick up their phone and call, you know, star whatever to get the highway patrol to come help them out. I mean, traveling in those days was dangerous. And so as you, as you read Psalm 121, recognize that this was a journey psalm. It was a traveling song that was emblematic of a prayer about life because life is, in fact, a journey. And so what's the theme? Well, God's protection over his people. The word keep means to guard and protect, and it's, in fact, used six times in this short little psalm. It's used in verse 3, and then in verse 4, and then in verse 5, and then two times in verse 7, and then again in verse 8. Now, the same Hebrew word was used in Genesis 2.15. When God created man, he, he put Adam in the garden to keep it, same Hebrew word, to tend it to care for it. And so what we learn from this psalm is that you and I should have confidence because God cares 
for his people. Now, how does that work? Well, it works really in two parts in this psalm, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 and following. And this is what some have called an antiphonal psalm. Have you heard of antiphonal music? Where, where there will be perhaps a small ensemble in the balcony of the concert hall. And the main choir will sing. And then it will be almost like an echo. This small ensemble will sing back. And then the choir will sing. And then this small ensemble will sing back from the balcony. It's called, an, it's called antiphonal music. All right? This is an antiphonal Psalm, And so, so what, what we suppose happened is verses 1 and 2 was sung by, by the worship leader, by, by the person who was in charge, perhaps the, the patriarch of the family as they traveled along the way, and then all of the others would answer back singing verses 3 through 8. And so that's the way the psalm is broken up. Verses 1 and 2 kind of state the premise, and then verses 3 through following uh, reflect that and develop it more. We learn in verses 1 and 2 that the believer can have confidence as he looks up to the Lord. And so we mention that the latter part of verse 1 is a question, um, not really a statement, from where does my help come? And then the answer, my help comes from the Lord. When we're in need, we depend on the Creator Himself. Notice that it says, my help comes, verse 2, my help comes from the Lord why do I know that I can trust this one? Why do I know that, that, that I can put my confidence in him? Because he is the creator. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. God's creative power is the foundation of his keeping power. During our discipleship hour during this, through the summer, we are watching a series of videos entitled The Heavens Declare. Right, reflecting on the psalmist's words, the heavens declare the glory of God. As we behold the magnificence of God's creation, as we see how, 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 how wonderful his creation it is, how intricate it is, how beautiful it is, we recognize more and more how great the creator is. And so the psalmist says, I can trust God, the creator the foundation of all. He is the creator and therefore he is the ruler, the one who controls his creation. He controls everything. He is in, he is in complete control. Ever ridden on a plane when it's really rough? You may not think about plane safety when you're just kind of cruising along at 30,000 feet and everything's nice and happy. Maybe you do, I don't know. But you probably don't give it a lot of thought. It's, it's when the storm comes and the, the plane is kind of bouncing around and they're saying, all right, put your seatbelts back on. Or, in fact, even the, the flight attendants are going to strap in. Right? That's the point at which you're thinking, how, how competent is this, this airline pilot? How, how good are they? And, and that's when you're the, the most worried and you get to the end of that flight and you land and you think to yourself, boy, I've, this has really rattled my confidence in, in airline flying. But when you think about it, that's actually when you should be the most confident, right? I mean, any Cracker Jack pilot can, can fly through, well, maybe not, but, but you, you, you know, it, it, it doesn't take as much skill to fly through smooth weather as to get me on the ground safely after having gone through that. Right? 
We can trust God because he's powerful. He's able to keep us. And even when things are difficult, when things are harsh, when the weather is rough, we can trust him as our pilot. But, you know, it's not enough to know that God is powerful. It's not enough to know, as we prayed in our little childish prayer, God is great. We also say God is great, God is good. Because for us to know that he's powerful is not quite enough. All right, this is what Peter says, casting all your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You see, if God were powerful, if he were, if he were great, without being good, that would give us no assurance. And so the psalm moves on in verses 3 through 8 to remind us to have confidence because God looks out for us. The believer can have confidence because God looks out for him. And so in verses 3 and 4, he is called the keeper. He will not, verse 3 says, he will not allow your foot to be moved. This word moved is to slip, to slide, to stagger. Uh, to, to be shaken, your, your foot won't slip. Now, in those days as they traveled, remember that the, the quote-unquote roads were at times nothing more than a small trail, a treacherous one at that. Uh, I was just hearing on the news last night that there have been a rash of deaths by people trying to summit Mount Everest. Have you heard this? They, they're accusing the Nepalese government of issuing, basically issuing too many permits and winding up with a traffic jam problem at the top of the mountain. And some have slipped, some have grown exhausted and fallen, and some have, have just laid down and died. And they're, they're addressing what can we do about this. All right? that's, that's a treacherous journey. That is a treacherous Path, and you don't want your foot to slip or to slide at the wrong time. The psalmist says, God keeps my feet on the path. He keeps me from slipping. He keeps me from sliding. He will not allow my foot to be moved. And then he goes on and gives us a reminder that God's care is constant. It is continuing. It, it is not capricious that he cares for us at some times and then fails to care for us at other times because he goes on in verse 4 and says, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Idol worshipers of that day had for, for deities just basically supermen, kind of, kind of souped up versions of humanity. And so, they had to sleep, right? You remember the prophet on Mount Carmel mocking the prophets of Baal, saying, maybe he's gone to sleep, maybe he's gone on a long journey. Why? Because they believed that, that their gods had to sleep sometime. The reminder here in the Psalms is that God never goes to sleep. God never wakes up the next morning and finds out, oh, I, I can't believe that happened overnight while I was sleeping. 
You ever do that? Like, oh, forgot to close the garage door. Uh, 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 or, or the neighbor's house got robbed. Or there was a, a, a major um, cataclysm that happened overnight. Oh my goodness, all that happened while I was sleeping. God never does that. He never wakes up and says, oh, that slipped my attention. When I was in high school, um, we, we entered into a venture that was, well, for high school, it was pretty lucrative, I thought. Um, uh, uh, my best friend and his family and us and our family had this great idea that we would make some money to help pay for college by setting up a fireworks tent. And so it, it went, went quite well. We actually did it several times, several years consecutively. I mean, two weeks before July 4th weekend, and uh, it's a lot of hard work, but it's, it's pretty decent money, right? Because you're just paying people to burn money, or they're paying you to burn their money. So we would set up this tent, and there, you had two options, right? It's a tent. You can't lock it up at night, so you had two options. Pack everything in a truck every night and take it somewhere and lock it away and then set it all up the next morning. Well, that was a ton of work. So what we did instead was we just parked a pickup truck right in the middle of the tent, and we just stayed the night with the fireworks, now, we couldn't be in a camper because if we were in a camper with the doors closed and the air conditioning running, then somebody could take all that stuff and we wouldn't have ever known they were there. So we, we camped out in this big old fireworks tent to make sure nobody stole anything. And we may or may not have had a large arsenal of weapons with us at the time. All right? I'm not saying whether we did or not, but... We were prepared if anything, if anything happened, right? So, so we stayed there, and we would doze off and wake up and, and then, you know, go over to the little village inn across the way and get a couple cups of coffee. But it, it was not really good sleep. We were not alert the whole time, though, right? The psalmist reminds us that God is always on duty. He's always guarding. He's always protecting. Nothing will ever slip his notice. And so I wonder this morning, when you are fearful, what do you focus on? You've, you've been reminded here before, we've, we've mentioned to you, that worry is meditation. It's just meditation on the wrong thing. It's meditation on what is untrue. So how, how do we answer worry? We answer worry with meditating on truth. What truth? The truth of who God is. And so when the world around us is dangerous and when we are concerned and we are fearful, the psalmist runs to the character of God. Do you have a habit of running to the character of God? Meditating on who he is, his strength, his might, his preservation, his keeping, his protection. Do you remind yourself, do you, do you preach to yourself throughout the week about who God is, the one whom you can trust? Our answer when we are fearful, as we are all inclined to be. Our answer when we are worried, as we all tend to do, 
is to meditate on the character of God who is the keeper, the one who does not sleep. And so the psalmist does not stop there. He continues to remind us about who God is, and he now uses the word, the words that remind us of God as the protector. So verses 5 and 6, the Lord is your, your keeper, your, your preserver. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. And then he goes on to develop that further in verse 6. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now what is this? sun by day, moon by night. Now, keep in mind that the average relative humidity in Jerusalem is 56%. That's, that's low compared to here. You have to go further west in Texas to get that kind of a average relative humidity. And what happens when you're in an arid area? A few years ago, we were visiting some friends, actually, this Julie's brother, we were visiting in Las Vegas, and I remember it was a really hot day, and we sat outside as the sun went down, and I almost had to go inside and get a jacket. Why? Because the temperature drops quite rapidly when it's that dry. So it's, it's, it's really strong and hot and oppressive during the day, and then when the sun goes down, it starts to become very cold. So as these travelers would travel to Jerusalem, they were, they were camping out under the stars. And so the heat of the sun and the cold of the moon were very relevant themes. They needed shade, and they needed at night protection from the cold. So they looked to God as their protector. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, as we consider really all of this psalm, but verses 5 and 6 in particular, keep in mind, this does not mean that obedient believers will never find themselves in difficulty. It doesn't mean that we will never encounter danger or that we won't feel pain, physical pain, emotional pain. There are things that God permits to happen in his will, but they will not ultimately harm us. I mean, David himself had some experiences that brought, that brought great heartache, right? Even, even those that threatened his life. But the Lord enabled him to turn those tragedies into beautiful psalms that continue to encourage us even today. And so this psalm, and really the scripture as a whole, is not promising us a life with no difficulty. It's not promising that no hardship will befall us. I mean, this life will be hard. It's speaking the truth that no ultimate harm comes to God's children. Much like what Paul says in Romans 8, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. My friend, if you're a believer this morning, you can rest in the reality that God is in control. And when we rest in this, it gives a whole new perspective to our trials and our hardships. They will come, but as they do, they are accomplishing God's good. They're not intended to destroy us, but to strengthen us. And so then he goes on in verses 7 and 8, reminding us that God is our preserver. In verse 7 he says, The Lord shall preserve you 
from all evil. Evil here means anything that could harm. It's a word of perspective. God in his grace turns the things that seem evil to us to good. So no ultimate evil, nothing will ultimately harm us. God in his grace uses even the hardships of life for his glory and our good. And then in verse 7, there just seems to be this subtle shift um, from the present to the future. The great thing from which we really need to be protected is our own sin and the consequences of our own sin. The thing that we really need to be saved from is, is ourselves. And so as we consider verses 7 and 8, God preserving us from evil, from, from calamity, it goes on to say, He shall preserve your soul. Now that's important because it reminds us of the gospel. That we are all infected by this thing that the Bible calls sin. Right? Romans tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us lack the ability on our own to have favor with God because we are all sinners. We've done that which we ought not to do. We've failed to do that which we ought to do. And because of that, we are separated from God. We're separated from God not just in this life, but, but even in the life to come in a terrible place called hell. That is what each of us deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve because of our sin. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life, to die on our behalf, and was resurrected the third day. And when he rose again, he signified that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. My friend, if you've never depended on Jesus Christ alone, turning from yourself and your sin, that today forgiveness is available, right relationship with God is available to you through the work of Jesus Christ. And as you trust in him, you depend on him completely, not, not your works, not your goodness, not your religion, not your background, but, but depending on him alone and turning from your own sin and self-dependence, he will forgive your sin and give you right relationship with God. That is called the good news or the gospel, that Jesus saves from sin. If you've never done that, anyone who's a member of North Hills would be happy to sit down with you and explain to you from the Bible how you can know this forgiveness of sin and right relationship with God. Many of you here this morning have done that. You have repented of your sin. You've depended on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And the fact is that if God can save us from our greatest problem, sin, how much more can he save us from all of our lesser problems that come to us in daily life? And this is exactly what the psalmist reminds us of in verse 8. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. This was a normal Hebrew phrase, a way of just saying the day-to-day -day life. He, he shall preserve, he shall keep safe your, your going out and coming in. You go out, you come in. That's the normal cadence of life. And the Lord will watch over that. If he can preserve your soul, if he can keep you from all, for all eternity, if he can give eternal life, we can trust him for that. 
How much more should we be able to trust him? For the mundane, the small things that cause us fear. From this time forth and even evermore. God preserves. He keeps. He can keep our very souls. And if we can trust him for our eternity, for our souls, for their salvation from sin, how much more can we trust him for our our going out and coming in, our day-to-day lives? So I wonder this morning, what causes you fear? What is it that that strikes fear in your heart? What is that thing that, that if this were taken from me, if this calamity befell me, I would have nothing to hold on to? What do you fear this morning? Is it related to to health? Certainly, we should care for our bodies. We should be good stewards of the gift that God has given us. But but do you live in fear, chasing every fad diet and constantly reacting to the latest study that's come out? What do you fear? Do you fear cancer, disease, malady? (coughs) Something that debilitates? I wonder this morning, is your fear related to your family? My children, uh, will, they, will they come out right? <laughs> will, will harm befall them? Will something hurt them? Will they, be, will they be successful? Maybe your fear this morning is related to your own security, your, your stock market funds, your job security, your finances. What is it that causes you fear this morning? As you you go down this journey of life, what do you meditate on? When you're tempted to be afraid, when when you're tempted to doubt God, what do you run to? God cares for us. He loves us. And as we and as we saw earlier, we are to cast all our cares on him. Because of his care for us. And so this morning, the challenge for us is simple. Meditate on the character of God. Run constantly to who he is, the one who can be trusted. Because he is great and because he is good. This morning we are challenged by this passage to have confidence because God cares for his people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for your word that reminds us of who you are and the fact that we can trust in you. And I pray this morning, as the psalmist has reminded us, that we, that we will lift up our eyes to the one that gives us our help. I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged even this morning to meditate on your character, to understand better who you are, and to take refuge in that. I'll give you a moment to remain bow before the Lord confess sin and to commit to him as he's worked in your heart this morning. Lord, continue to use these reminders in our hearts of who you are, a God who is great, is powerful, the creator of the universe, a God who is also good. 
who cares for us. May we lay our cares at your feet each day to be reminded of your character. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. In just a moment, we will receive the offering, our opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. And as we do, let's uh, bow in prayer. Lord, now we give these gifts to you, our opportunity to acknowledge that you own all. And help us to give these tokens after having first given our hearts. We worship you now. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.